Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 5 of Mongols and Mamluks called the Sack of Baghdad. Now in the last episode we heard how the 7th Crusade led by the French King Louis IX was disastrously defeated by the Mamluks in Egypt. You may remember that Louis also sent an embassy to the Mongols asking for help in a holy war against Islam. Now this embassy didn't meet with great success but it was true that the Mongols were preparing to attack Islam and in this episode we're going to move on to a truly extraordinary bit of history which is the Mongol invasion of the Middle East and the sack of Baghdad. Now the back background to this was that the Mongols were religiously pretty tolerant, but they did prefer Christianity to Islam at this time, since many of them were Nestorian Christians. But their huge empire stretching from China to Hungary now also included quite a few Muslims, and they were keen to assert their authority over the Muslim caliph in Baghdad, who was widely seen at this time as the head of the Islamic world, although in fact there wasn't really a single Islamic leader. And indeed it's interesting to note that there wasn't really a single Christian leader since even in the Christian West the Pope wasn't the head of the Nestorian Christian Church which existed quite independently of Europe in Asia and even in China. So as Mongol attention turned to the Middle East it looked as if Jerusalem might be recovered for Christianity not by the Crusaders but by the Mongols. But as you will hear, there were many twists and turns along the way in this story, which I will recount in both this episode and the next. And in this episode, we'll concentrate on the Mongol sack of Baghdad in 1258, which must go down as one of the greatest disasters in history, similar to the sacking of Constantinople by the Fourth Crusade in 1204, since Baghdad was the cultural capital of Islam at this time and probably the largest city in the world outside China, famed for its cultural achievements, in particular its 26 great libraries and countless beautiful buildings. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In the mid-13th century, the Mongol capital, Karakoram, located in central Mongolia, became the diplomatic centre of the world. When Louis IX's ambassador, William of Rubruck, arrived there in 1254, he found embassies from the Byzantine emperor, from the caliph, from the king of Delhi, and from the Seljuk sultan, as well as emirs from the Jazeera and from Kurdistan, and princes from Russia, all waiting upon the great Khan. There were several European settled there, including a jeweller from Paris with a Hungarian wife and a French woman married to a Russian architect. There was neither racial nor religious discrimination at the court. The supreme posts in the army and the government were reserved to members of the imperial family, but there were ministers and provincial governors from almost every Asiatic nation. The great Khan, called Monka, followed the faith of his fathers, which was shamanism, but he attended Christian, Buddhist and Muslim ceremonies 
ceremonies indiscriminately, he held that there was one god who could be worshipped as anyone pleased. The chief religious influence was that of the Nestorian Christians, to whom Monker showed special favour in memory of his mother, who had been a Christian. His principal empress, Kutuktai, and many others of his wives were also Nestorian Christians. William of Rubruck professed himself much shocked by the ignorance and even debauchery of the Nestorian ecclesiastics and considered their services to be little more than drunken orgies. Indeed, one Sunday he saw the Empress return reeling drunkenly from high mass. But his embassy was not an entire success. All that William could obtain from the great Khan was the quite sincere promise that the Christians should receive ample aid so long as their rulers came to pay homage to the Khan as leader of the world. The King of France could not treat on such terms. Therefore, William left Karakorum in August 1254, having learnt, like many subsequent ambassadors to the courts of further Asia, that Oriental monarchs understood neither the usages nor the principles of Western diplomacy. He travelled back through Central Asia to the court of Batu and thence over the Caucasus and Seljuk Turkish Anatolia to Armenia and so to Acre. Everywhere he was treated with the respect due to an envoy accredited to the great Mongol Khan. Rather more successful was King Hetum of Armenia, who arrived at Karakorum shortly after William's departure. He had come of his own accord as a vassal, and as the other foreign visitors were either vassals who'd been summoned against their wills or representatives of kings who arrogantly claimed independence, he was shown a special favour. At his formal reception by Monka on the 13th of September 1254, he was given a document confirming that his person and his kingdom should be in violet, and he was treated as the great Khan's chief Christian advisor on matters concerning Western Asia. Monka promised him to free all Christian churches and monasteries from taxation. He announced that his brother, Hulagu, who was already established in Persia, had been ordered to capture Baghdad and to destroy the power of the Muslim caliphate. And he undertook that if all the Christian powers would cooperate with him, he would recover Jerusalem itself for the Christian. Christians. Hetum left Karakorum on the 1st of November, laden with gifts and delighted by the success of his efforts. He journeyed back home by way of Turkestan and Persia, where he paid his respects to Halagu, and was back in Armenia the following July. Hetum's optimism was natural, but a little excessive. The Mongols were certainly eager to control or else to destroy the Muslim caliphate. They had already so many Muslim subjects that it was essential for them to dominate the chief religious institution in the Muslim world. They had no particular animosity against Islam as a religion. Similarly, though they favoured Christianity more than any other faith, they had no intention of permitting any independent Christian state. If Jerusalem was to be restored to the Christians, it would be restored under the Mongol Empire. It is interesting to speculate what might have happened had the Mongol ambitions for Western Asia been realised. It is possible that a great Christian carnate might have been formed and might have in time devolved from the central power in Mongolia. But St. Louis' 
dream that the Mongols would become dutiful sons of the Roman Church was unthinkable, nor would the Christian establishments in Western Asia have retained any independence. A Mongol triumph might have served the interests of Christendom as a whole, but the Crusaders of Outremer, who were aware of the Great Khan's attitude towards Christian princes, were cautious about an alliance with the Mongols. In January 1256, a huge Mongol army crossed the river Oxus under the command of the Great Khan's brother Hulagu. Like his brother Kublai, Hulagu was better educated than most of the Mongol princes. He had a taste for learning and himself dabbled in philosophy and alchemy. Like Kublai, he was attracted by Buddhism, but he never himself gave up his ancestral shamanism and he lacked Kublai's humanitarianism. He suffered from epileptic fits and they may have affected his temper, which was unreliable. He was as savage towards the conquered as any of his Mongol predecessors, but the Christians had no reason to complain about him, for the most powerful influence at his court was that of his principal wife, Doku. Katun, who was a passionate Nestorian Christian, who made no secret of her dislike of Islam and her eagerness to help Christians of every sort. Hulagu's first objective was the assassin headquarters in Persia. Until the sect was destroyed, an orderly government would be impossible. The next objective was Baghdad, then the Mongol army would proceed to Syria. The Grand Master of the Assassins, Rukhad Adin, vainly tried to avert the danger by diplomatic intrigues and diversions. Hulagu entered Persia and moved slowly and relentlessly through Damavend and Abbasabad into the valleys of the Assassins. When the huge army appeared before Alamut and began the close siege of the citadel, Rukhanadin yielded. In December he came in person to Hulagu's tent and made his submission. The governor of the castle refused to obey his orders and to surrender it, but it was taken by storm a few days later. Rukhanadin was promised his life by Hulagu, but he asked to be sent to Karakoram hoping to obtain better terms from the great Khan Monka. When he arrived there, Monka refused to see him, saying that it had been wrong to tire out good horses on such a fruitless mission. Two assassin fortresses still held out against the Mongols, Gurku and Lembesa. Rukhanadin was told to go home and arrange for their surrender. On the way, he was put to death with his followers. Orders were sent at the same time to Hulagu that the whole assassin sect must be exterminated. A number of the Grand Master kin was sent to Jagatai's daughter, Salgun Katun, that she might herself avenge her father's death. Others were collected on the excuse of a census and massacred in their thousands. By the end of 1257, only a few refugees from the assassins were left in the Persian mountains. The assassins in Syria, however, were as yet out of the Mongols' reach, but they foresaw their fate. At Alamut, the assassins kept a great library full of works on philosophy and the occult sciences. Hulagu sent his Muslim chamberlain to inspect it. He set aside the Qurans that he found, as well as books of scientific and historical value. The heretical works, however, were burnt. By a strange coincidence, there was about the same time a great fire caused by lightning in the city of Medina, and its library, which had the greatest collection of works on orthodox Muslim philosophy, was totally destroyed. After the assassins had been wiped out in Persia, Hulagu and the Mongol host moved against the headquarters of orthodox Islam at Baghdad. The 
Caliph al-Mustasim, the 37th ruler of the Abbasid dynasty and son of the Caliph al-Mustansir by an Ethiopian slave, had hoped to revive the power and prestige of his throne. Since the collapse of the Khwarizmian Turks, the Caliphate had been its own master and the rivalry between Cairo and Damascus enabled the Caliph to behave as the arbiter of Islam. But though he surrounded himself with pomp and ceremony, al-Mustasim was a weak and foolish man whose main interest was his personal amusement. His court was torn by a feud between his vizier and his secretary, who had the support of the heir to the throne. Baghdad was, however, strongly fortified and the caliph could call upon a large army. But it depended on contributions from his vassals and al-Mustasim did not trust his vassals. He therefore followed his vizier's advice to reduce the army and spend the money on a voluntary tribute to the Mongols which would keep them away. Such a policy of appeasement was hardly likely to succeed, even were it consistently carried out. But when Hulagu replied by demanding complete control over the caliphate, the suggestion was haughtily refused. Hulagu approached the campaign with some trepidation. His astrologers were not all of them encouraging and he feared treachery from his own Muslim vassals and the intervention of the rulers of Damascus and Egypt. But his precautions against treason were effective and no one came to the rescue of Baghdad. Meanwhile, his own army was strengthened by the arrival of the contingent from the Golden Horde and the army that Baichu had kept for the last decade on the borders of Anatolia and by a regiment of Georgian cavalry eager to strike against the infidel capital. At the end of 1257, the Mongol army moved down from its base at Hamadan. Baichu with his troops crossed the Tigris at Mosul and marched down the West Bank. Kitbuka and the left wing entered the plain of Iraq due east of the capital while Hulagu and the centre advanced through Kermanshah. The caliph's main army started out under Ibeg to meet Hulagu when it heard of Baichu's approach from the northwest. Ibeg recrossed the Tigris and on 11 January 1258, he came upon the Mongols near Anbar, about 30 miles from Baghdad. Baichu feigned to retreat and so lured the Arabs into a low marshy terrain. He sent engineers to cut the dikes of the Euphrates behind them. Next day, the battle was renewed. Ibeg's army was driven back into the flooded fields. Only Ibeg himself and his bodyguard managed to escape through the waters to Baghdad. The bulk of his troops perished on the battlefield. The survivors fled into the desert and dispersed. On the 18th of January, Hulagu appeared before the east walls of Baghdad, and by the 22nd, the city was completely surrounded with bridges of boats constructed across the Tigris just above and just below the city walls. Baghdad lay on both sides of the river. The western city, which had contained the palace of the earlier caliphs, was now less important than the eastern part where the government buildings were concentrated. It was against the eastern walls that the Mongols made their heaviest attacks. Al-Mustasim began to lose hope. At the end of January, he sent the vizier who had always advocated peace with the Mongols together with the Nestorian patriarch, who he hoped might intercede with Doku's Katun to try to make a treaty with Kulagu. They were sent back without even obtaining an audience. After a terrible bombardment during the first week of February, the eastern wall began to collapse. 
collapse. On the 10th of February, when Mongol troops were already swarming into the city, the caliph emerged and surrendered himself to Hulagu, together with all the chief officers of the army and officials of the state. They were ordered to lay down their arms and then they were massacred. Only the caliph's life was spared until Hulagu entered the city and the palace on the 15th of February. After he had revealed to his conqueror the hiding place of all his treasure, he too was put to death. Meanwhile, massacres continued throughout the whole city. Those that surrendered quickly and those that fought on were alike slain. Women and children perished with their men. One Mongol found in a side street 43 newborn babies whose mothers were dead. As an act of mercy, he slaughtered them, knowing that they could not survive with no one to suckle them. The Georgian troops, who had been the first to break through the walls, were particularly fierce in their destruction. In 40 days, some 80,000 citizens of Baghdad were killed. The only survivors were a few lucky folk whose hiding places in cellars were not discovered, and a number of attractive girls and boys who were kept to be slaves. And the Christian community, which took refuge in the churches and was left undisturbed by the special orders of the Mongols. By the end of March, the stench of decaying corpses in the city was such that Hulagu withdrew his troops for fear of pestilence. Many of them left with regret, believing that there were still objects of value to be found there. But Hulagu now possessed the vast treasure accumulated by the Abbasid caliphs through five centuries. After sending a handsome proportion to his brother Monka, he retired by easy stages back to Hamadan and thence into Azerbaijan where he built a strong castle at Shaha on the shore of Lake Ermaya as a storehouse for all his gold and precious metals and jewels. He left as governor of Baghdad the former vizier Muayyad, who was closely supervised by Mongol officials. The Christian Nestorian patriarch Makika was given rich endowments and a former royal palace as his residence and church. The city was gradually cleaned and tidied, and 40 years later, it was a prosperous provincial town, but only a tenth of its former size. News of the destruction of Baghdad made a deep impression throughout Asia. The Asiatic Christians everywhere rejoiced. They wrote in triumph of the fall of the second Babylon and hailed Hulagu as the new Constantine. To the Muslims, it was a ghastly shock and a challenge. The Abbasid Caliphate had for centuries been shorn of much material power, but its moral prestige was still great. The elimination of the dynasty in the capital left the leadership of Islam vacant for any ambition. Muslim leader to seize. The Christian satisfaction, however, was short-lived. It was not long before Islam would conquer its conquerors. But the unity of the Muslim world had suffered a blow from which it would never recover. The fall of Baghdad following half a century after the fall of Constantinople in 1204 put an end forever to that old balanced diarchy between Byzantium and the Arab Caliphate under which Near Eastern humanity had flourished for so long. The Near East was never again to dominate civilization. After the 
destruction of Baghdad, Hulagu turned his attention to Syria. The first step was to strengthen the Mongol hold over the Jazeera, and in particular to repress the Ayyubite prince Al-Kamil, who refused to accept Mongol rule, and had gone so far as to crucify a priest who had visited him as Hulagu's envoy. Before he left his encampment near Miraga, Hulagu received envoys from many states. The old Atabeg of Mosul came to apologise for past misdeeds. The two Seljuk Turkish sultans arrived soon afterwards. They vainly tried to placate Hulagu by fulsome flattery, which shocked the Mongols. Finally, Annesir Yusuf, ruler of Aleppo and Damascus, sent his own son, Al-Aziz, to pay humble duty to the conqueror. The city of Mayafarakin was besieged and captured early in 1260, thanks largely to the help of Hulagu's Georgian and Armenian allies. The Muslims were all massacred and the Christians were spared. Al-Kamil was then tortured by being forced to eat his own flesh until he died. In September 1259, Hulagu led the Mongol army out for the conquest of northwest Syria. It now looked as if the whole of Islam was threatened with destruction. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the Mamluks fought back against the Mongols. (laughs) 